Well, beloved listeners, heroes come in all forms from all walks of life. And uh, there are those that uh, put their lives on the line by, well, fighting fires or wars and those who stand up for their beliefs, even when that involves considerable danger. But all heroes are human, and so they make mistakes along their heroic journey. But these are often glossed over because uh, people want their heroes to be perfect. Now, my next guest has looked at some of the heroes of modern history and found a few of them wanting. He digs into the lives and reveals some of the darker sides of such icons as uh, Che Guevara and even Mother Teresa. Otto English is a journalist and author who likes to stir the pot, or as we say in the antipathy, stir the possum. His last book was called Fake Histories and looked at uh, some of the biggest lies in history that needed to be revealed. His latest is called Fake Heroes, 10 False Icons and How They Altered the Course of History, and it's published by Wellbeck. And Otto, welcome to the Little Wireless Program. What first drew you to this dangerous, or this heretical idea of looking at heroes and blowing raspberries? Well, thank you for having me on, Philip. Um, uh, Well, about a year and a half, no, maybe two years ago, I was commissioned to write um, two obituaries, one of uh, the Queen uh, and one of her husband, Prince Philip. I was commissioned to write those by the American uh, news site, uh, Politico. And uh, I said I would do it on condition that I could write the obituary of Mrs. Windsor and Mr. Windsor rather than the Queen and Prince Philip, because I wanted to get behind, get beneath the crown, if you like, you know, and, and see who the real human being was behind it and how she kind of squared her public image with the private person behind. It was incredibly difficult to do that because, and I don't have to tell you this, but because, of course, the Queen and Philip, to some extent, were such huge, iconic figures, but also because of the layers of protection around those images. Um, And it took me months. I mean, I I have little hair left anyway, but what little hair left I, I lost because I kept scrapping and starting again. And that was kind of the inspiration for my second book. What was the reaction to your uh, candour? Well, when the, obviously, Prince Philip died first. So you obituaries write their obituaries in advance. So I wasn't writing that far in advance. I was writing a few months because Politico was aware that obviously they were both getting very old. Um, So some obituaries are written years ahead, but mine was written a few months ahead. When both came out, I did have a sort of hand-to-mouth moment. Uh, So Philip was a good tester. Um, The reaction to the Philip one was extraordinary because um, a lot of people who I thought would be angry about it were actually hailing it, saying that I had kind of revealed him as he he really was. I'd sort of debunked a lot of the stuff around him or the amazing achievements he'd had because I discovered in writing it that Prince Philip himself had debunked a lot of those things, like the Duke of Edinburgh Awards, 
uh, I don't know if you have those in Australia, but it's an awards scheme that we have here in the UK for young people. He said, it's nothing to do with me. It's just got my name on it. He was very frank about it. Um, that was one thing. When the Queen died, uh, I was again expecting a very negative reaction. And I did get a negative reaction. I got some emails and some comments written on things that had nothing to do with it from people calling me like a traitor and all this kind of thing. But actually, I felt I had written a very rounded human portrait of Elizabeth Windsor. And quite a lot of more people agreed with me than disagreed. And I think that gave me sort of nerve to do it. Now, your chapter with um, Mother on Mother Teresa co-stars yeah. an Australian cult leader. Would you... Yeah. Become, I think the listeners vaguely recall Mother Teresa. Would you remind them about uh, Anne Hamilton Byrne, please? Yes. Anne Hamilton Byrne was a yoga teacher and cult leader from Melbourne in the 1960s who created... Uh, the cult actually had many names, but uh, the most well-known name for it was The Family. And they had a sort of a ranch stroke house outside of Melbourne um, where they ran this, I mean, extended family, in inverted commas, where she dressed up these children that she had adopted through all sorts of curious ways uh, in clothes sort of reminiscent of the kids in The Sound of Music um, and for years, there were rumours in the region, in the area, about, about this bizarre goings-on behind the barbed wire of this compound. Uh, and eventually, the police raided it uh, and discovered all these kids carrying, because the kids had been brought up in this essentially end-of-world cult, and they believed that the police were going to kill them and all these kinds of things. Um, the reason I told that story is because uh, I think that in many ways... Mother Teresa herself ended up being in a cult. <laughs> and um, although the, the, the family in Melbourne was a, a cult infused with drug taking and things like that, the reason I picked Anne Hamilton Byrne was because she had managed to kind of associate herself with some very powerful people in Australia and influential people. And I wanted to point out that throughout history, powerful people have befriended other powerful people in order to kind of, you know, prosper their cults, if you like. Well, let's let's look at the Mother Teresa. I'm no great fan, as we'll uh, discuss later, but, uh, you know, she she didn't care where her money came from, did she? Yeah. I mean, that, that, there are several, several shocking things about Mother Teresa. I mean, um, Christopher Hitchens, the iconoclastic uh, English writer, um, did spent a decade and a half kind of writing and going after while she was alive, pointing these things out. Uh, but, you know, a bit like the child who points at the naked emperor in the Hans Christian Andersen story, not everybody was prepared to listen. Uh, it, again, it's a long, complicated story, but to boil it down, the young Mother Teresa um, became a nun basically because she had grown up in a very enclosed environment and, and her immediate family all died in the Spanish flu. And she sort of got on a what I describe in the book as a kind of career ladder. You can almost view 
her rise, almost like somebody's CV. And we, we don't always do that with people who become, secu- you know, who become saints. We don't think of them in career terms. But she rose up this path of becoming a head teacher, setting up her own order of nuns, becoming and later becoming a global figure. But there were two fairly dark things going on at the centre of it. One, at some point in the 1950s, and shockingly, really, she probably stopped believing in God. Now, that is an absolute hand grenade to the legend of God. <laughs> you know, oh, dear. And, and whenever, I, whenever I say that or write it, <laughs> I find myself kind of checking that I haven't dreamt it and I'm saying the wrong thing because uh, it is so, so bizarre that um, this, the most famous nun of our era probably wasn't believing in God. Um, well, but, as, a, yeah. as a lifelong atheist, I find myself warming to her despite the fact that Christopher Hitchens, who was my first regular guest when I started doing the program 30-odd years ago, despite the fact that he described Mother Teresa in uh, in terrible terms in his book called The Missionary Position, Mother yeah. Teresa in Theory and Practice. And he talked about her as a fanatic, fundamentalist and a fraud. Yes. I think I think Christopher Hitchens probably did the, the anti-Mother Teresa cause a slight disservice through that because... Um, she was definitely a fraud, but but how much was it her being a fraud and how much was it the rest of the world projecting what they wanted her to be? Because it's society that creates heroes. People, people themselves very rarely set out to become a hero and say, look at me, I'm amazing. It's society that creates them and the way that she was shaped and formed. She, she actually became famous on the back of a TV show in the early 1970s when a, a British journalist called Malcolm Muggeridge, who was having a kind of midlife, well, late midlife crisis and had suddenly become religious, went looking for proof of God. And he found this woman uh, with her mission in Calcutta and decided that she was proof of God's existence on earth. And it was Muggeridge who elevated her and turned her into this iconic global figure. And Mother Teresa, in turn, latched onto it. But in the process, no one was actually looking at what she was doing, where the money was coming from, and why she wasn't spending it. <laughs> Otto English, I want to uh, now use your name to remind us of that great English hero, Robert F. Scott. Do some, yes. do some myth busting. <laughs> well, first of all, I should point out that Otto English is, of course, a pen name, and my real surname is Scott, which is one of the reasons <laughs> why I picked Captain Scott. Because if you share the name with a famous person, you kind of sort of latch onto them in childhood. And, and growing up in the UK in the seventies and even in the eighties, the legend of Captain Scott persisted. You know, this he embodied everything that England wanted to be, kind of stiff upper lip, doing something slightly pointless but heroic, going out there and kind of conquering the world uh, and, and then dying a kind of heroic death. And um, the, the Norwegians, who actually got to the South Pole first, were painted in contrast to sort of off-stage figures who had kind of snatched the prize from Scott, who was this 
great Voltero. But you um, make the point that he was a bit of a fraud and that he claimed that science was his motivation in the expedition yeah. when, in fact, it was self-advancement. It was self-advancement by him, but the, the British always wanted to hide their kind of greed to be the first to do something behind scientific achievement. It was kind of a, a sort of, you know, like one of those protective cushions that comes out at you from your car in case of an accident. Uh, if all else goes wrong, we can take the moral high ground. And so we were on a great scientific mission and we we weren't interested in getting to the South Pole first when really they were. Uh, the, uh, the best thing I can say about Captain Scott is that his diary genuinely is a classic. I mean, it's beautifully written it's a great pity that instead of you know that, that rather than trying to walk to the south pole he could have probably written a great novel or something the guy was a talented writer um but he took the wrong kit um the the british at the time also had an obsession with something called man hauling uh which is carrying everything with you strapped to your back like sort of a physical uh, Herculean challenge. So the Norwegians turn up in the Antarctic with about 120 dogs. Yeah, the British turn up in the in the Antarctic with about 30 dogs, uh, which only understand Russian, and nobody <laughs> in the expedition, nobody in the expedition can speak Russian. Yeah, and the, the, there's a strange moment where the British. And the Norwegians meet before they set out on the journey. And the British can't understand why the Norwegian mission is so small. There's about 15 or 20 men and there's hundreds of dogs and they just don't get it. They don't see what's going on. And uh, by con contrast, the British expedition was a bit like, you know, like in the 70s and 80s when those when Queen went on tour or Pink Floyd went on tour and they had one of those massive light displays and whatever. That's essentially what the British did in Antarctica. They took everything, the kitchen sink, they took record players <laughs> from the South Pole, uh, whilst the Norwegians travelled light and fast. And there's a reason for that. The Norwegians had learned about Arctic survival from the people who were the true experts of it, and that was the indigenous Inuit people of the North. The Norwegians, Amundsen, uh, had spent years studying under the Inuit. And therefore, he knew how to survive. He knew what clothes to wear, and he knew the value of fresh meat and fast dogs. And the British, in their lofty imperial manner, instead were walking around in Burberry overcoats and carrying gramophone. <laughs> now, of all your myth-busting, people are most upset about what you've done to the, the explorer. Yes, it's really striking to me that um, I that when you write a book like this, you, you kind of, so in my first book, I sort of debunked the myth of Churchill. And that was like kicking a hornet's nest in, you know, in a pillowcase and then climbing, putting the pillowcase over your head in this country. It really angered a lot of people in the UK, particularly a lot of these sort of groups that supported Boris Johnson people really went after me so I did I did think with the second book okay who what are people going to get angry about and I somebody warned me that people would get angry about the Mother Teresa cha chapter but that hasn't really happened uh, people thought the JFK chapter would annoy people that hasn't really happened 
the Andy Warhol chapter has kind of annoyed. In fact, I bumped into a neighbour of mine yesterday who is an artist, and he kind of harangued me in the street for 10 minutes. But that aside, <laughs> it is the Captain Scott one that has really annoyed people in the UK. I, 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 would, have, I would have thought your myth-busting about RAF pilot Douglas Bader would have uh, got you into trouble. Yeah. I thought that would have happened as well, actually. Um, I think that the thing, when you write a book like this, you kind of set out, I call it the chocolate box method. You kind of set out, you know, like you have a chocolate box with different flavours. So I picked different flavours of heroes. So I picked like a war hero, a political hero, uh, a religious hero. Um, And yes, I thought people would also get cross about Douglas Bader, but... Uh, I think the reason that hasn't happened is because I happen to have brought my book out at the same time that other people are bringing out books about Colditz, in which Bader's myth has also been debunked. So I think there's been a kind of fuse effect, if you like, you know, like the fuse box has already gone off and people now know the truth about Bader. Uh, Let's let's remind the younger listeners about why he was so significant. So Douglas Bader in the 1930s was an RAF pilot who was showing off one day uh, and he he crashed his plane and lost both of his legs and very nearly died and was fitted with a pair of artificial legs. The RAF didn't really want him anymore, so he went off and worked for the Shell Oil Company. Come the Second World War, of course, that kind of critical moment in, both in World War II but also in the mythologizing of World War II that then happened in the UK in 1940 the Battle of Britain Bader re-enlisted uh, and uh, ended up leading an RAF squadron uh, at the same time and this is something that people neglect to remember the British Air Ministry was very good at propaganda. So they painted the few, as they became known, as kind of a bit like a boy boy band members, you know, a bit like Take That or, you know, I can't think of any more modern uh, boy bands than that. But like, like, like boy band members, you had like the, you had the sort of mother's son one, you had the hunky one, you had the rogue one. And Douglas Bader became the kind of Robbie Williams of the RAF, you know. <laughs> he was the sort of, he was the cheeky one. He was like the, uh, he was the stylish one. He was a very handsome guy. And also he had lost his legs. And that was kind of almost like a metaphor for how Britain was portraying itself as the, as the small country taking on the mighty Nazi and Axis powers. I mean, it was complete nonsense because in 1940, the UK was a global superpower with a massive empire and could draw on men and resources from around the world, including, of course, Australia and New Zealand. So uh, it was a bit of a myth, but it was a very potent myth. And now, Bader, Bader, of course, or Bader, was uh, made even more heroic by a very memorable feature film, and there's nothing like a movie to uh, to help with the heroic image. One thinks of what David Lean did for uh, Lawrence of Arabia. But in the case of Che Guevara, it wasn't a movie, it was a photograph. Yes. So the iconography can, that can create a hero is fascinating. I mean, it goes right back to Alexander the Great and his head being stamped on coins. And yes, when you think of Guevara, you immediately think of that famous image, um, the heroic gorilla. 
uh, of him sort of, you know, like the sex symbol of, of communist revolution. And that image was propagated in the immediate wake of his death. Uh, and he he died at a really smart, I mean, obviously you can't choose the timing of your death, but he died in late 1967, just before the revolutions of 1968, when people took to the streets, uh, young people took to the streets across France and the UK and South America. Um, and thousands of them carried this image. He became like an like a saint of the hippie era to to youth revolutionaries, um, but the I, un- I understand he's a, a, a hero to uh, Russell Brand, for example. Oh, can we say that? <laughs> yes, he is a hero to Russell Brand. Um, and about ten years ago, Russell Brand bought out a book called Revolution where he basically posed in the same um, image on the front cover. And Russell Brown went around uh, reading out Guevara's speeches. Uh, Actually, not his speeches. He was reading out extracts from his diaries and letters. Um, And there you go. There's another example of somebody who's created a kind of very soft, sexy, outwardly image, but there's all manner of other stuff going on behind it. What was the dark side of uh, showing? So I had trouble writing that chapter. I, I found myself almost getting quite emotional about it. The young guy, the young revolutionary, the young guy who was inspired to set out to change the world was a remarkable human being, and you would have wanted to know him. Uh, there's the, the guy who set out on the famous motorcycle diary journey across South America and saw a very middle-class guy from Argentina from a very middle-class family, and he sets out on that journey and he sees the iniquities and the things that America has visited on his part of the world, and he gets angry and politicised and eventually um, meets the Castro brothers and sets out to liberate Cuba from a terrible dictatorship. Um, And that's all good. I was an incredibly heroic young man. The problem with Che Guevara, and this is something which happens to people throughout history, is that the hero who sets out to kill the dragon becomes the very monster that he wanted to destroy. Now, um, the, the listener is going to have to buy at least one copy of the book because we've just touched the tip of your, uh, your mythical iceberg. But I have to ask you a very personal question at the end. Do you have a hero of your own? Yes, to some extent, and I talk about it in the book. Um, I have several heroes. You know, there are people throughout life who inspire you. Um, Many of them, you know, with flaws. The hero I select in my book and the hero that I prop up is my father Uh, because my father was uh, much older than me. He was in his 50s when I was born and had fought in the Second World War. And my father did something absolutely remarkable in my childhood. He, having been a soldier for those six years, having fought through Africa, into Italy, North Africa, and then up into Germany and France, he refused to glamorise his place in it or what had occurred. 
And it was the single greatest history lesson, in fact, life lesson anybody could ever have given, whether he gave it wittingly or not. And it's inspired all of my work subsequently. So I owe him and my mother a huge debt of gratitude. Thanks for that, Otto. I've been talking to Otto English and uh, Otto's book is called Fake Heroes, 10 False Icons and how they altered the course of history. And you'd be amazed at uh, some of the people that pop up in the text. It's uh, published by Welbeck. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.